0: Welcome to Lean Back. I'm Lisa. And I'm Laura. And today's episode is about lust. So I guess we should start by thinking about maybe the difference between lust and love. Laura, what do you think? I think love is an ongoing
1: feeling that you're committed to. And I think lust is a very sensory-based, immediate feeling that you have. I feel like lust feels more powerful because it's so immediate and it's so based in the senses and love is really something that requires work and intimacy and commitment and time and lust is really based on your desires i think there are two sides to lust i think you should express your desires freely but lust can also be you know it can be destructive in some ways so I wonder. I wonder how you navigate the idea of lust, given that it it is problematic in some ways and power, empowering in others.
0: Yeah, I suppose all of all of the emotions are that way, though. I don't know that lust is specifically problematic in that way. That too much of a good thing could be a problem. I think too much grief can be self indulgent. Too much shame can be self indulgent. The entire emotional register. Functions in that kind of repertoire where there's probably a range of (laughs) acceptable, you know, affect. The difference, I think, is that the culture really prevents people from thinking through what their desires are. And for lust, because it's about sexual appetite in the US, with it being so sexually repressive, I feel like lust has the potential to be a really radical emotional and somatic space because the culture is so um, sexually repressed. And so I think lust is an interesting way to think about desire and longing and appetite. But of course, its darker side is about coveting and about acquisition and ownership and about possession and about property. So for me, I think... Lust is a very salient space to interrogate sort of the emotional content of contemporary American culture because it has these two very compelling poles that are always being challenged and undermined by contemporary neoliberal culture. I like that you brought that up because when I was
1: thinking about lust... I kind of read it as a feeling of agitation and how that like plays negatively in a, in a lot of senses, but it could also be a feeling of anticipation, which yeah. can be very productive. And so I like that you brought up that that productive possibility of lust and that transformative possibility of lust.
0: I mean, Freud was the first to write about how sexual tension can be really pleasurable, which I would tend to agree with. Like, I like the role that that kind of tension plays in public culture. Like anybody who works in politics is a liar if they say that they don't like that part. Um, because I feel like it keeps things moving. It creates a dynamism in interactions. And I sometimes get into these conversations with some of my colleagues about like sexual harassment law. And, um, you know, about what constitutes sexual harassment. And in the vectors between communication and, say, public health, there's so much new research about how the inarticulateness about lust is really where a lot of people's concerns about public sex culture lie. The reason that rape happens is not because some dude's going to steal you into the bushes. It's because you don't have the vocabulary to talk about desire at the bar or in the car or in the bedroom. And so men and women anticipate and decode each other's signals around lust poorly because there is no public discussion about what lust is or what it can be or what its limits are or the transitory nature of it. All of those conversations are so stifled because the U.S. is such a sexually repressed culture that lust, I think, is undervalued as a vector of human expression. And it actually, that undervaluing leads to really tragic consequences. Like, there are real hardcore consequences for people around sex and violence because we don't talk enough about tension and lust and desire. Right. As you were
1: talking, I was like, that's really dangerous, right? Because people express their lust in these violent ways, you know, because it it gets coded in these really awful ways. Because lust isn't an expression that you're allowed to embody, but violence is, especially if you're a man. Yeah. And so your lust gets coded with violence, gets coded with masculinity. And that becomes very dangerous. I mean, it's an agent to rape culture. You know, it's an agent to harassment. The fact that we're not allowed to openly express sexual desire, and and lust is also about more than sex, but that you're not allowed to express desire, period, you know, (laughs) makes you figure out other ways to channel that energy. And it's especially dangerous for for. I don't know. I feel like men get this, like, uh, negative connotation applied to their personalities because they channel lust in these, these ways that are violent. They're showing off in these aggressive ways.
0: I mean, the thing is, is that brutality is really understandable. It's a legible vector of human emotion. Think about the Motion Picture Association and how they rate films. So you could get an NC-17 rating for sex, but you could see a movie with as many stabbings and killings and murder and blood and gore and violence, and that is not a thing that should be uh, censored or repressed or labeled. And for me, that's a really concrete example of how violence is an acceptable space for desire in a hyper-masculine culture, and a hyper-white white supremacist culture especially, but sexuality is not. So, I mean, how many, I mean, if we just think about, if we think about popular culture as instructional content, how many times have you seen the female orgasm represented on TV? like aside the from organizing more than, <laughs> well i'm know? just saying like in in primetime film how many times is a female orgasm even a subject of commentary i mean it's just like not it's an empty space you can count the numbers on fingers and toes whereas if you think about vi- i mean violence we would be here all day thinking about how often we see representations of violence in you know televisual culture I mean I'm not really trying to beat that drum super hard except to draw attention to the fact that the erasure of lust and certainly female lust is not a topic that is part of hypermasculine culture. And so if women's desires aren't represented, and by women I don't I don't necessarily just mean cis women or biological women I mean, the whole gamut, if those desires aren't translated in representational ways, how do people have scripts and examples and texts and histories from which to decode their own cravings? They don't. And so you're setting people up for this culture that is hyper-surveillance and hyper-violence around heteronormativity and heterosexist marriage, And then you have people who are completely ill-equipped to make that run because they have no vocabulary to talk about their wants or needs. And so that sets people up, I think, for failure. Then the corollary to that is that here's all this punishment that comes if you can't successfully translate your inarticulate desires into a heteronormative framework. So we're gonna shame you or guilt you or beat you or yell at you at the bar or rape you or in some other way punish you for being unable or unwilling to conform with some mythical sense of what female desire especially looks like. But it's not like the men get off easily, too. I mean, they're forced into this box about being hyper-masculine and, you know, being the pursuer, and that's exhausting, too. It's exhausting to watch, and I'm sure it's exhausting to live it. You know what I'm saying? So it's not like there's anybody who's really benefiting in a way. It's, it's all creating a series of cognitive and psychological profiles of people where they're just psychically cutting parts of themselves off because they can't access them, it's illegible to them, it's illegible to other people. You know, they don't have the words to describe what they want and what they need, and so they begin to psychically mutilate, you know, their psyche. And that's avoidable, I think. It's really just, like, completely unnecessary. But lust is so stigmatized
1: publicly. Like, any example of public lust... I'm thinking of really obvious examples like Bill Clinton and Monica Lewinsky.
0: Yeah. <laughs> you know,
1: and uh, Anthony Weiner. <laughs> and Anthony Weiner was absolutely inappropriate, right? But <laughs> but the, the the stigma around lust is so strong. Part of that is religious. I I believe that lust is one of the the seven, seven deadly sins. And I mean, you feel this religious shame. There's public shame. I don't know. I, I hesitate to feel or express lust in any way. And I'm not religious, you know? So, I mean, there's a very real public shame involved in expressing
0: feelings of lust. It's only problematic if you can't make reasonable distinctions. Like, maybe lust is okay, but lechery is not. Maybe lust is okay, but sexual objectification is not. I mean, and I don't know that it's that neat, but for the purposes of having, like, I don't know, an open public conversation about sex, it would behoove people (laughs) to at least debate those distinctions, to see if they're real or not, to imagine new ways of understanding sexual longing especially, you know, or longing for other kinds of, of sexual intimacies. I feel like we're, we live under a regime that hyper-regulates lust, sometimes under the guise of feminism, sometimes under the guise of fascism, both technologies of the state, that is ultimately problematic. And I feel like some of the best criticism, certainly from the feminist movement, is around statist interventions around lust. Um, I think one of my favorite books still is Shulamith Firestone's The Dialectic of Sex. And I love that book because Shulamith Firestone talks about children's sexualities, which we just like absolutely refuse to talk about in this culture, that children have sexualities or that they have sexual interest or sexual expressions. Because we don't talk about it as children and we don't have comprehensive sex education and there's not a ton of research on children and sexuality that way, obviously then you've got a bunch of adults who don't have any information and don't have a sense of their own bodies and don't have a sense of their own desires or needs. And that seems just like a strange lacuna for me, given how much sex people have or want to have. Given how much of sex is a driving force of public culture, it's very surprising to me that we want to withhold all of the information about it, even though everybody's doing it. (laughs) You know? It seems like national self-sabotage. I've been thinking a lot about Donald Trump as a lusty guy and about Hillary Clinton as the lack of lust and about um, what that means as a representational politics of the nation and if it's representational or not. Because I feel like the pussy grabber-in-chief has actually articulated (laughs) quite a bit of lust and desire. And I think it would be ridiculous to think that that was not appealing. That the thing that a lot of, especially men, but definitely also white women, the thing that attracted them to him was that he was openly lusty. And... That is a dynamic, I think, that is worth exploring, because she was clearly a technocrat. She was hampered by her husband's lust, but it artic- it was articulated in a very d- different vector in time than Trump's, and it was revealed in a different way. There are
1: a lot of ways to to, to parse that, because Hillary Clinton isn't allowed to be lusty, primarily because she's a woman, and that's like an unattractive way for a a woman in her sixties to present herself. And there's like a, a public expectation about, uh, women that they should be polite and, um, pretty and quiet. And none of those things really conform with an expression of lust but also, she's not allowed to be lusty because of the, the association of her name with Bill Clinton. That's right. And his public lust. And so she is tangled up in that and has to restrain herself even more. So I, li- I like that you kind of compared her with Donald Trump, who is publicly... <laughs> he is clearly a man... Who is unrestrained in his expression of lust.
0: All of the desires. Right. All I of mean, the desires.
1: Absolutely. In public interviews, he talks about tits. He talks about attractiveness. He talks about his daughter. Limit. Yeah. His daughter. Right. And even in terms of power, you know, it's not just sex. I mean, it's the whole Damn. gamut of acquisition. Like, he wants to put his hands on anything that's attractive. If it's a woman, if it's a business deal, if it's a, a TV show,
0: he'll do it. Yeah, he has no limits. It's interesting to think about Trump as a, an authoritarian who is, potentially has the capacity to undo The regulation of desire through capital? (laughs) How does that work, right? I feel like this is a very interesting moment in sexual politics because the left doesn't understand Trump as either a signifier of desire or as signified desire. They don't see how people can map their desire onto him and they don't see how his desire is appealing to them. So that inability to read the way in which he interfaces with sexual desire and political desire and money and power, I think, is a problem for the Democrats. I mean, his lack of restraint
1: was his selling point for a lot of people. Uh They were like, he tells it like it is. Uh (laughs) Like he doesn't lie, even though that's his whole deal. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, but he expresses desire very legibly. And that was important for a lot of people who saw Hillary Clinton as someone who was very restrained. And to see someone so unrestrained about their desire
0: in public, I mean, that was attractive. I mean, I write a lot about the relationship between white supremacy and sex. And this is a moment where white supremacy is having a resurgent interest because it's being paired with sex culture. So for me, this moment is very legible because these recursive time periods where you have white nationalist isolationism, capital impulses, anti-progressivism, They all pretty much look the same. The racist dog whistles are invoked at the same time that white womanhood is invoked as ideal beauty. It's impossible for me to read this moment as one where sex and race are not conflated. It seems to me that they very clearly are, and they are two major axes upon which lust and power map. But I also think a lot about the relationship between lust and labor. You know, I was talking a little bit earlier about scholars do sexual harassment law and think about workplace policies about sex and sexuality and about how interesting I find that outside of the legal field, but in the field of the psychosocial. And I'm thinking a lot about the relationship between lust and leaning in or leaning back because I feel like, I feel like Trump is definitely a lean in kind of guy. (laughs) He wants the women to lean all the way in, all the way across the desk, all the way across into his view. I feel like Trump is the guy who wants women to lean in. It's certainly the case that
1: Trump expects women to perform sexuality in a very particular way. For him. For him. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think that's divorced from sexual desire. Especially when when it relates to women. I think a lot of times women reject and stifle their own sexuality in order to conform to a public expectation. So we talked about how lust a lot of times is at odds with conformity or a public's expectation of you. Women, when they're they're called to lean in, are often called to reject their desires. Mm -hmm. They're called to reject their desires um, a lot of times in favor of the desires of a man (laughs) or in favor of (laughs) the desire of, like, the whole patriarchal structure that disadvantages them and doesn't respect their personal desire. And so I, I think lust becomes a fraught issue when you think about how much it has has to be restrained in order to
0: achieve success in that public way it's interesting because i think about you know rock and roll as white appropriation of black music obviously and as totally unregulated lust and i feel like that's the draw of rock and roll whether it's like big hair metal bands or, you know, or Zeppelin or whatever. But I feel like the draw to rock and roll was a repudiation of conservative social mores that calcified after World War II for the baby boomers. And representational art became the only way that they could articulate their desires so they could could vicariously live through you know, the desires of rock and rollers or whatever. And I wonder if we might think about contemporary discourses where desire might circulate in the way that it did at the end of the 60s or early 70s. It would look very different now than it did then. And we might think about the political factors shaping that, whether it's mass incarceration or global media conglomerates or the Internet or the destruction of teachers' unions or hyper-privatization of college or how does the shifting of state power influence the veins and but like the scope scale content of discourses about desire Mm because then I think you get a much larger sense and a more historical sense of how and why desire discourses don't emerge in productive spaces now. There are spaces for desire.
1: And they just that exist. To, they're just hyper local. <laughs> they're. I, I. wouldn't say hyper local. I would say they're very niche, hmm. and you have to to seek them out. And most of them are internet communities, right? And so you don't hmm. have a a space. A, an interpersonal, a real interpersonal space to express desire, but you have message boards to do that. Craigslist yeah. <laughs> as as right. externalization of America's desire. There are more places now. Second Life. <laughs> Grindr. Oh, right, yeah. There are more do spaces. Do people still Second Life? Is that really a thing? Oh, yeah. Still? Well, here's the thing. There are a lot of people who have physical disabilities, yeah, sure. Sure, right? Sure. And their physical expression doesn't match uh, their inner life. And so Second Life is an, an avatar for the person that they would be if they were fully functional physically or if they had the capabilities that most people have. So Second Life...
0: Yeah, I didn't know so that it was. The, I just didn't even know it was really still a thing that people did that. Right, because I mean, there, there was this moment in the academy where people were like, "We're going to put our university in Second Life, and we're going to teach in Second Life." And like there was this moment maybe ten years ago where Second Life was going to be like the second kind right. of right. It certainly education. not. Sort of, sort <laughs> didn't do that shockingly, but yeah, I think I think you're right that online communities become that kind of place. Right. So, but it it it, it becomes difficult because you have access to all this information. No, I think, you know, I think online, obviously online spaces are a place for desire um, and the expression of it. Certainly porn is there all over everywhere. I just wonder about how people navigate it in such a hyper commodified, hyper surveilled culture that fetishizes labor. That's why the sexual harassment is an interesting place for me. The promulgation of that legislation in the 80s at a time when women were entering the workplace and it's like all indecent proposal all the time. It's like all of the films in the 1980s were like, oh my gosh, your boss is going to be this crazy lady and she's going to stalk you and rape you and we shouldn't have women at work. But that's a very interesting moment to think about desire and work. Because it's all about the externalization of male anxiety about women who do express their desires. At the moment where you have this hyper-conservative discourse that's anti-woman in the workplace, you also have sexual harassment laws, right? Both of those discourses serve to t- tampen down female desire as it relates to labor, which is very interesting to me. I mean, if I didn't have
1: access to the internet, I don't think... I could accurately represent my inner being. I mean, just in this last week, there were a handful of men in separate incidents that were rude and condescending to me or dismissive of me. If that was my only access to people, I would feel stifled in a very real way. I think that we do have to be clear about uh, where desire is a personal thing and where it infringes on other people's boundaries. Mm -hmm. So I don't think that you should regulate lust completely, but you should also be very clear about where and when your lust affects other people. How do you know when what you're doing is a problem? How do you know when
0: when you're infringing on someone else's space? How do you know if it's an obscenity? How do you know if it's pornography? How do you know if it's harassment? I just think about 20th century law as a space for understanding the discomfort That Americans have with lust and their deep desire to have the state regulate it. Like that we can't come to consensus about ways to be decent to one another, and so the state has to come in and then regulate it for us. But I do disagree that I don't think that there's a lot of freedom online. I think that that it's mostly an illusion that there's freedom online. I think there are points of contact that can be generated online that can't necessarily in the community, in the community that you perhaps reside in or that you're mobile in. And there's value in that for sure, but I don't know that it's freedom because it's still hyper-regulated, whether you have to pay to enter the site or, you know, pay a membership fee or, you know, there are all of these other ways where that access is completely dependent upon a class, especially here in Arkansas where there's, like, huge swaths without broadband, you know, access at all to the Internet. But I guess, you know, when we, when we thought about this season – we originally wanted to call this episode Hunger. And I wonder as we sort of conclude this episode if we could sort of meditate on the differences between hunger and lust. I like hunger because it speaks to a lack that has to be filled in a way that reflects on, say, the Gospels and reflects on feminist theory and reflects on food insecurity as a political issue and it is about a deep, essential part of the structure of human needs. It's very Maslow, you know, in the hierarchy of needs. So I had originally thought hunger would be a really fascinating way to think about the way that we engage with others in our political communities. And I think that lust is a different term because it's so hypersexualized. And I'm curious if you'd, if you'd like to add to that about sort of the difference between hunger and lust. So earlier,
1: I was really impressed by your broad exploration of lust because mm-hmm. I had been reading lust as a feeling of agitation.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I feel like hunger is definitely a feeling of agitation, whereas lust is broader than that, right? Mm-hmm. So it encompasses it is. much more of your emotional space than hunger does. Because hunger is very animalistic. It is a feeling of agitation. Well, with hunger, once you get what you're
0: after... You're
1: satiated. You're satiated, right? Mm-hmm, you're full. And, and even a lot of times you're disappointed with yourself. You're like, why did I even do that exactly? Why did I eat that, you know? Mm-hmm. I, I don't feel emotionally satisfied. Mm-hmm. It just satisfied some, like, innate part of myself. Lizard brain? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, and lust can be that way sometimes. Yes, like it sometimes can. I'm like, why did I do that exactly? Like why why was that like the object of my desire? There's more joy and lust. It's more connected with your actual person than hunger is.
0: And I also think it's connected to non-fulfillment. I mean, I think that the tension part is really important in lust. Because you can sustain the lust only through non fulfillment. That's very interesting to me. A because we live in a puritanical culture. <laughs> it's about non fulfillment generally. And B because there's some play in that that maybe demands another. You know, that mm-hmm. there's some sense of connection and interpersonal play that is a part of lust. Um, and for me, I'm sort of a, I'm voracious, you know, if I had to pick one word to describe myself, it'd be voracious. So I read, I consume a lot, you know, I'm very high maintenance that way. So I read tons of stuff and I'm, you know, I go to lots of things and I feel like that is the fulfillment of lust. like I'm lusty about ideas. I'm lusty about interpersonal interaction. I'm lusty about talking about intimacy and thinking through you know the politics of intimacy in communities. And I feel like it's also an orient it's like an ont it's almost an ontology, you know <laughs> at this point. The relationship between hyperintellectualism and voracious, you know, consumption of ideas and experiences, unless they go together, at least for me, in a way that's super productive, you know? So in the same way that there's sexual tension, there's also intellectual tension. I'm never going to know all the things all the time, right? I like that that's an unfulfillable thing that keeps me moving forward, and that is a product of interactions that I have you know, with other intellectuals. You know, like you and I could do the podcast for a hundred years and not talk about all the things. Right. There's a part of that tension in the non-completion that's very playful for me, that is sustaining, you know, that gives me a lot of energy to keep moving, that that supports the kind of engagement that I want to have with people in the community that I'm close to. And so I like lust for that reason, because it connects my intellectual life and my somatic life. And hunger doesn't do that for me, which is why I think lust is actually bigger, even though I think hunger has some other kinds of political implications and literatures that are useful in thinking through how we orient desire. But I actually, I like the demystifying of lust and the politicizing of it as a liberatory space better, perhaps, than hunger. Thanks for listening. These materials are not endorsed, approved, sponsored, or provided by or on behalf of the University of Arkansas Fayetteville.